Good morning. Uh, welcome, all of you. Uh, I know I'm seeing some repeat faces from people who have been here from weeks before. It's good to see you again. It's good to have you back again and welcome Midtown Home Church. Welcome people watching online. Um, this is still a strange season. This is still a season that we would uh, never have imagined or a season that we would never have picked or even maybe been able to conceive how the Lord may use a season like this because um, so many of us are just kind of we're kind of just waiting for like, okay, we're, we're, we're doing the thing, we're doing the, the, the way we're supposed to be doing it, we're spacing out and we're doing these limited services and um, we're waiting for it to kind of get back to normal, but no one even knows what that means or when that'll happen. And so in this waiting season of when will it go back, when will it be the way we want it to be again, um, we're trying to lean into this idea that uh, regardless of how long this season lasts, regardless of how long uh, we have to wait like this, that we wouldn't be idle and we wouldn't be um, stagnant in our understanding of what is the Lord calling his church to, uh, what is the Lord calling his church to be in a season that feels uh, unsettling. And so that's what we're doing these five weeks, these first five weeks of live services. We're looking at this biblical idea known as the priesthood of the believer. That if you're in Jesus, uh, the New Testament is very clear. It is God's intention for us, it's God's intention for his people that we would be a, a, a kingdom of priests. We would be a priesthood, a royal priesthood to the world. And so what does that mean and what, why, why does that matter for us in a season where things feel scattered and things feel unsettled? Well, we're hoping to unpack this idea, and I'll give you our, kind of our working definition of a priest in a second, but we're trying to unpack this idea that regardless of what's going on in the world, and maybe even especially because of what's going on in the world, we would lean into this idea, this biblical truth that says, hey church, this is who you are and this is God's intention for you regardless of the season that you're in, is that we would be a kingdom of priests, we would be a royal priesthood to the world. So a helpful definition for that, kind of a working definition for our series is this, is that a priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and then invites others into that presence. A priest is someone who has access to God's special presence and then invites others into that presence. So week one, a few weeks ago, we looked at this idea that Adam and Eve were the first priests in the first temple in the Garden of Eden, and they had special access to God's presence, and they were mandated to be fruitful and multiply and bring as many other people into that presence as they could, but they failed and now we bear the mark of their being cast out and their being separated from God. And then the second Adam, Jesus, came. The better priest came and has restored us to God, God's presence. And then two weeks ago, we looked at Abraham, the, the initiator, the patriarch of God's people, our, our great father Abraham, who was called by God that he would say, that God would say, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that my blessing can flow through you to the ends of the earth. That priests are those that take the blessing they've been given and they share it with the world. Blessed to be a blessing. And then last week we looked at what does it mean that Peter in 1 Peter calls us a royal priesthood and all the implications of that beginning to flesh out and add some color to this understanding that we are priests. We are a kingdom of priests in the world. So those are the last three weeks. And then this week we're going to look at another passage in the New Testament. We're going to look at another very rich passage in the New Testament but you need to know, I'm going to read it for us in just a second. In order to understand all the color and all the imagery and all the beauty of this New Testament passage that, that's related to this idea of us being priests, we need a, a, a giant lesson in some Old Testament history. 
And so we're going to read this passage, and it may seem like a lot, and, but we're not going to dive into the passage until we've kind of gone back and studied uh, some truths and some, some ideas from the Old Testament. So if you'll turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 9, or it'll be on the screen uh, if you have it or if you're at home. Um, it, it should be on the screen for Midtown Home Church as well. But uh, hear these words from Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. It says, but when Christ came as high priest of all the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? It's the word of the Lord. Okay, so like I said, we're going to go back. Um, we're going to go way back, and we're kind of going to build this understanding that adds a lot of meaning and understanding and, and color to that Hebrews 9 passage. The book of Hebrews, just so you know, uh, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew, the book of Hebrews would blow your mind because it is written to Jewish people who understand Old Testament tradition and Old Testament practices, and then the author of Hebrews overlays the person of Jesus with all of this Old Testament background. So we need to understand some Old Testament things before we really understand certain parts of the book of Hebrews. And so that one of the things we're going to look at uh, is this passage in Hebrews 9 and what do we need to know from the Old Testament to give color to that. So we talked about this last week uh, at 12 South, but in the Old Testament, the house of the Lord was known as the temple. The temple is where the Spirit of the Lord dwelt. This, the temple was the most holy, sacred, physical structure in all of the Israelite universe. But the temple was broken up into kind of three major sections. The temple had the outer courts, the, the courtyard. You entered the temple gates and you're in this courtyard. And then, and then inside the building was what was known as the holy place. And then inside the, the very center of the holy place was the holy of holies or the most holy place. They probably could have come up with better names than holy place and most holy place, but it get the point across, that there's these three sections, and as you go inward, you get more sacred. As it goes inward to the center, because the center, the most holy place, this little room inside the temple, inside the holy place, was where the Spirit of the Lord dwelled. It's where the Spirit of the Lord put his presence on earth. The holy, the holy of holies, the most holy place, was the most sacred, most joyful, most uh, awe-inspiring, most terrifying place in the whole world. Because it's where the Spirit of the Lord dwelt. Nowhere else in the world had the Lord put his Spirit other than the Holy of Holies. This is where God dwelled. And so once you got into the temple gates, if you were a Johnny Israelite, no one was named Johnny in ancient Israel, but if you were Israelite commoner, okay, then you would walk into the temple gates and you would have to come in and present your sacrifice and you could kind of get close. You were in the outer gates, you were in the outer courtyard, but you couldn't get inside. There was kind of these layers of access to God's presence that every everyday Israelites with their sacrifices that they would come and bring to the priest they would bring their sacrifices and they could get inside but they couldn't go all the way inside 
The priest could go in, and then high priest, we'll talk about in a minute, high priest could go all the way in, but, but for the everyday Israelite, they had limited access to the place where God dwelled. And so the priest would take these sacrifices, these, um, these lambs and these goats that were without blemish, they would take these sacrifices from the people, and they would slaughter these animals, and then they would sprinkle the people that had brought the sacrifices, they would sprinkle the people with the blood of these animals, and they would take this animal and they would, they would slaughter it and they would sprinkle the people and then they would, they would literally stand between God and man. They would act as an intermediary. They would act as an intercessor. They would act as an advocate. And they were literally saying, Lord, you require blood to have access to your presence. And so these people are unclean. These people don't have what it takes. They don't have special access to get to your presence. So we're going to slaughter this animal. And Lord, would you look on the blood of this animal and then not require blood from this person? They would present the animal's blood to make atonement for the sin of the people. They would advocate for the people. Use this blood, Lord, to cover over the sin of your people. So the priest interceded for the people with the blood of an animal And the priest would go before the Lord and they would plead with the Lord. And they were doing this intercessory thing where they were were literally saying, in your justice, God, look on the blood of this animal and don't require the blood of your people. And some of these sacrifices were happening literally every day in the temple of the Lord in ancient Israel. So there were, all, there were these categories of sacrifices, and the book of Leviticus is all about this. It's why it's so boring for most of us to read, because it's just, then this sacrifice for this offense, then you need this sacrifice to be burning at the third hour of the afternoon, you need this sacrifice to be burning all overnight, and then you need this, and it's just how much sacrifice and how many doves and how many lambs and how many goats do we have to kill in order to make this happen? And so all of all these sacrifices that were happening literally every day, they were important in their own right, but they were leading up to this one day. It's known in the Jewish tradition as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on this particular day of sacrifice, this once a year, you can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 16, once a year, the high priest, meaning the chief of all priests, the the one priest who was over all the other priests who were performing these sacrifices, the high priest, he would perform a sacrifice for his own sin, and then he would take this spotless goat he would take this, 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 this animal and sacrifice him, and he would sprinkle the blood on the people, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go into the holiest place in the universe, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And on that Day of Atonement, a lot was riding on this day. Because on that Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, it's the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, he was literally saying to God, may you look on the blood of this animal and atone for all the sins, all the secret sins, all the sins that we didn't even know we were committing, all the sins that we didn't even know how to repent for, all the sins we didn't sacrifice for in this past year. Atone for all of that with this sacrifice in your Holy of Holies. And then, Lord, if, if you would in your mercy and look on that as just, would you still dwell in this Holy of Holies for the year to come? A lot was riding on this day. But in order to get behind, in order to get from the holy place into the holy of holies, the priest had to go behind this curtain. The curtain was 30 feet tall, 4 inches thick, and 60 feet wide. And so it closed off this this little space, and it, and it was this massive thing, but this, this curtain was known as what separated. It was so thick and so grand and so heavy. It was known to be what separated God's presence from his people. But on this one day of atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the slaughtered animal blood, and he would atone for the sins of all the people. 
But because the people of God understood this place and this day to be so holy, because the high priests especially, try to imagine this, this moment, going into this, this holy of holies, into this place that you only came in once a year, and you had to atone for all of your sins before you would go in. But the priest was, was so aware of what he was about to do to enter this terrifying little room and this joyful little room and this holy and sacred little room, he would actually have a rope tied around his ankle with a bell on it. And what would happen is he would walk into the Holy of Holies, but if one shred of him, if one act, if one ritual, if one ceremony hadn't been made perfect and done exactly right, and he was still unclean in the, in the slightest degree, he would be struck down in the Holy of Holies because of his sin. And so imagine this for a minute. Imagine if you're the guy holding the rope on the other side of the curtain, and the high priest goes in and you hear the bell ring. Do you want to go in and try to get him out? And so, no, that's what that rope was for. They literally would have to drag the high priest out if he, if he didn't perform all the ceremony exactly right. No one was, was confused about the holiness of this day, and no one was confused about the magnitude of this day. But on the Day of Atonement, year after year, the curtain was passed through, and the high priest would sacrifice for all the sins of all the people and atone for their sins. Let's pause for just a minute. I hope you're getting this, this little picture of what would go on in the, in, the, in the life of an Israelite and for the people of God. But let's ask this question first. What is atonement? Because we kind of say that word, and I know if you were raised in, in the West, um, if you have a Western mind, then even the idea of atonement sounds archaic. Even, even the word atonement sounds outdated. Like, isn't that what ancient people thought about their bloodthirsty gods? And what does this Old Testament God of the Bible have like, why is he so, so set on getting all this bloodshed on behalf of his holiness? And aren't we now so enlightened to know that that was an old view of God, but we've now arrived, and we know that, that was, those people were just so confused back then? Like, they didn't actually need to do all that. If, if they just understood the world like we understood the world, then they would have known that atonement wasn't actually needed. Doesn't atonement just sound primitive to all of us? Well, the basic definition of atonement is to pay an appropriate price to make two one. That's what the word actually means. It actually means literally at one meant, atonement, at one meant, or making at one. Atonement, therefore, please understand this. This is very important if we're going to understand anything uh, about the book of Hebrews or anything about uh, the person of Jesus. Atonement in every sense of the word, is a relational term. Atonement is meant to make two parties who are separate, bring them together and make them one again. At-one-ment. Atonement, therefore, presupposes a relational separation, a relational alienation. And so, because of this relational separation, because of this relational alienation, a proportionate or an appropriate price has to be paid in order to make the two one again, and a price that would match the nature of the separation. A price has to be paid that matches the nature of the violation or the nature of the separation or to make the separate things one again. Atonement has to be made, and it will cost something. But I know we get this. That, again, maybe even sounds archaic, that there's this separation and atonement has to be made to bring the two and make them at one again. But if you have any friends or if you are in, in any kind of romantic relationship, if you're involved in any relationships with your parents or your siblings, you understand this. 
that when you've been wronged, you long for and you actually require a payment to be made to end the separation. When there's the pain of sin between two people, when there's separation going on in a relationship in your life, if something has caused the severing, if something has caused the space and the alienation, something has to be done to make the two people one again. In marriage, when you verbally say something that causes space, both parties, if they're relational, long for the space to be brought near again, long for atonement to happen, long for atonement to be paid. And so, atonement in a marriage, when there is a verbal miscue or a verbal damage, when verbal damage is done, and now there's space, atonement in a verbal pain or a verbal wound, atonement has to, at the very least, um, be verbal. Meaning, if there's going to be this coming together, this at one minute again, something has to be said. If, if something being said is what caused the space, something being said has to bring the space back together. The payment required for the two to become one again is always equal to the size of the wound and the size of the space. And the payment that will mend the space will at the very least have to be related to the thing that caused the space. Does that make sense? That atonement in all of our relational space and all of our relational alienation from each other, we understand when I long for this to happen, it doesn't just happen. Something has to be paid to bring the two and make them one again. So do you know, imagine this, okay, just atonement in general. We're not even talking about biblical atonement, just atonement in general. Relational space that can be made one again. Do you know what the payment in the ancient world, do you know what the payment was for treason against a human king? Do you know what was required if this family that had someone in their family commit treason, if that family is going to be brought back into oneness with the king and the kingdom, do you know what was required for someone in order to make atonement for treason against a king? We, it wasn't just a verbal payment. <laughs> Kings required bloodshed in order to make the space, to close the space of the separation. Bloodshed was always required to atone for the separation that was caused by treason. So what do you think the atonement would be or could be or should be for cosmic treason? What's the atonement for rebelling against the rightful authority of the king of the universe? What's the appropriate price of atonement? Okay, so maybe we can begin to get a little picture of why the Lord sets up this whole sacrificial system to begin with, that cosmic treason has taken place in Genesis chapter 3. And so it's actually in the Lord's mercy. It's actually in the Lord's kindness that even sets up a system that atonement could be made, but it's going to cost a heavy price. But please remember, please remember throughout this whole sermon, the relational nature of atonement. All of this atonement, all of this at-one-ment, all of this sacrificial system in the Old Testament was relational in nature, okay? And it started with the Lord. The Lord was the one that was relational in nature and longed for the relationship to be at one again. It was the Lord that set up the sacrificial system because he longed for a relationship and he knew atonement was needed. It was also relational from the Israelites. They knew, all the Israelites knew, the Spirit of the Lord, the presence of the Lord is in that room and our high priest is the one who kind of mediates this presence, and we can get close, but we can't even really get that close, but as close as we can get, if we're going to get that close, if we want to be close, if we want the, the relationship to be restored, atonement will be required. 
Relationship was what all of this was for. And so in this sense, remember the the people of God kind of felt a little bit like they were on the outside, and then the priests were a little bit on the inside, and the high priest was the one who had the, the limited but full access to the presence of the Lord. But even with all this sacrificial atonement being made, even with all of this bloodshed happening and then building up to the day of atonement for the people of God, there was a sense, there was this underlying guttural knowledge for the people of God. And, and the Old Testament kind of hints at this. The New Testament makes this very clear that all the people of God knew, they, they knew it on a deep level, that the day of atonement wasn't enough. They knew there needed to be more. The book of Hebrews tells us in another place that it, is, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. Meaning it was impossible for the bloodshed of these animals to actually do something permanent and to do something lasting. It was clear to the people year after year after year of all this bloodshed and of all these days of atonement going down, it was clear to the people, it was, it was obvious to the people of God that we keep on sinning and there keeps, there keeps becoming this space in the relationship and we're still guilty and our consciences aren't cleared. We're still living under the weight of our sin and we long for real and lasting atonement. We want a relationship where the presence of God, this atonement is actually made and actually lasts. Because every every day of atonement, thank you, high priest, for risking your life and having that little bell tied around you. But every time you go in there and you come out and you announce to us that the payment took, we start sinning again. And so our sin problem keeps creating space. We need something that's better than just this one day a year that will clear our record for the last year and then we build up a new record for the next year. We need something that actually takes care of the problem. And this bloodshed of of goats and bulls and heifers, it's not actually clearing our conscience. It's not actually taking away the guilt that we know that we have. There's still space between the relationships. So that's your long Old Testament introduction back up to Hebrews chapter 9, which we read a few minutes ago. So now, with a lot of that uh, understanding, with, with the brief vision of the temple and the curtain, and the holy of holies, and the high priest going in. Let me read us again Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Will you put this back on the screen? But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But he entered the most holy place, the holy of holies, once for all, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Okay, so a lot lot here. But what was just said by the author of Hebrews would have, yeah, it deserves a honking horn outside. Home church, there's a honking horn outside. Someone heard, no, I'm sorry, I'm about to make a joke. (laughs) Serious. What the author of Hebrews just said would have blown the mind of any Jewish reader. 
They, they literally would not have had a category for what the author of Hebrews just said about Jesus. Jesus, the true high priest of God's people, did not enter the Holy of Holies by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal or permanent redemption. Jesus did something that no one would have ever thought possible. Jesus entered the most holy place. Jesus went behind the curtain and he offered a sacrifice of his own blood once for all. Meaning, his sacrifice, his bloodshed, was one and done. It paid the price not only for sins committed in the past, but it paid for the sins of your future, too. Have you sinned since Jesus shed his blood for you? Yes. Has Jesus needed to die again for sins that you've committed since he died for you? No. Because this once-for-all-time bloodshed dealt permanently with the problem of sin, this bloodshed atoned permanently, and it covered the separation of sin once and for all. So much so, to such an astronomical nth degree, did this atonement pay for and atone for the sin of God's people. It was so eternally permanent that now no more sacrifice is ever needed for God's people. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But see, many, 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 many modern spiritual people in the name of deconstruction or in the name of spirituality, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious, end up doing this, this somewhat ironic thing with, with the idea of atonement. Many people abandon the idea that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrificial atonement that paid for our sins, that atoned for our sins in the Holy of Holies, and turned aside God's justice and God's wrath and satisfied. A lot of people get rid of that. Do you know why they get rid of that? Do you know the, do you know the, the spiritual mantra that, that says atonement is archaic? It goes something like this. I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. I believe in a loving God, not a God that requires atonement. Many people want to throw out the idea of atonement and replace it with the God of love. My God is a God of love, not a God that requires atonement. And the irony of it is that in the name of the doctrine of the love of God, they've actually made it more shallow. That if you want to throw out the idea of the atonement of God, if you want to throw out the idea that Jesus' sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice, you actually shrink the love of God, you don't expand it. Because you will never understand the love of God if you get rid of the idea of Jesus being an atoning sacrifice for you. That's the irony of this modern, shallow view of God. They want the love of God to be elevated, but they've actually taken the structure out underneath it and actually shrunk the love of God, not grown it. Because the doctrine of the love of God is not that he needs no atonement. The doctrine of the love of God is that he provides it himself. The doctrine of the love of God is not that he needs no atonement. The doctrine of the love of God is, is that he provides the atonement that is needed himself. And because of this great love of God, the love of God that held Jesus on the cross for you, so that Jesus, by his own blood, could enter the most holy place once for all time and make atonement for your sins, now the blood of Jesus has paid for your sin past, 
present, and future. And why did he do it? Because he loves you. He loves you way more than if you take away the idea of atonement and say, why does that bloodthirsty God in the Old Testament still, why is it still around today? Why would we hold on to such an ancient, antiquated view of God? It's because if you throw out the idea of the atonement, you throw out the depth of the love of God. Now again, as amazing as that reality is that the blood of Jesus has paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future, please do not forget, please, this, this is, this is tantamount. This, this, is, this is critical for us. That the goal of atonement was always to restore relationship. The relational nature of at-one-ment. This is the driving force of atonement at its very core. Remember how the temple was set up? Remember how there was the courtyard and, and where the people could be and then there was the holy place where the priest could be and then the holy of holies where the high priest would go? Remember how the presence of God was contained to this one little place? Remember how the presence of God was only accessible truly in its, in its purest form by one person once a year? And remember how distant the people of God would have felt from having access to that special presence? And remember how the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament people of God knew on the guttural level that all these sacrifices weren't enough? Remember how we're told that whatever atonement was made by the high priest, the Old Testament people of God still did not have enough to clean their consciences and give them access to the presence of God behind the curtain. Okay, remember this, and remember their relational nature. Now, I'm going to read for you this short little passage from the scene of the crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this, this moment that happened at the crucifixion. But with, with your now PhD level knowledge of the temple that I've just given you in the last 20 minutes, now that you fully understand everything about the Old Testament sacrificial system and the temple, now take that and hear this little passage that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us, this, this little scene from the crucifixion. This one I'm gonna read comes from Matthew chapter 27. It says, and Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit. This is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last, okay? Jesus is dead. Next verse in Matthew chapter 27. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints <clears throat> who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, so the first thing that every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first thing that these gospel writers want us to know about what happened and what the cross actually did, the first thing they tell us is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Did you hear the other stuff that happened after Jesus was crucified? Dead people were getting out of tombs and walking around and saying hi to their friends. But Matthew wants us to know that he actually found it more amazing. Not that dead people were getting up and finding their friends in the city, but the most amazing thing that happened after the crucifixion was that the temple was torn in two. In fact, Matthew says, and behold. Like, hey, I know I just told you that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, died, but listen to this. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. torn in two from top to bottom, and this curtain was at least 30 feet tall, maybe taller. So if it's torn from top to bottom, what Matthew wants us to know 
is that some little temple priest didn't climb up to the top or like cut it from the bottom. Like this was not like he set a match to the bottom because he understood that the high priest of, of all God's people has just been sacrificed and now we had access. The person that tore the temple curtain was no person. It was the Lord himself tearing the temple curtain from top to bottom. Which means that for the first time since the Garden of Eden, direct access to the full presence of the Lord was granted for all people. You don't have to go through a priest anymore. You don't need a high priest to offer a sacrifice on your behalf because your better high priest, Jesus, presented his own blood on your behalf in the Holy of Holies and atoned for all of your sin, past, present, and future. So now get this. Because of the relational nature of atonement, there is now no more space between you and the Lord. There is no separation. Now, I'm not saying you don't feel like there's separation. I'm not saying you don't doubt that there could be separation. I'm not saying that you don't sometimes understand that the reality is you don't have any separation between you and the Lord. But if you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, no more atonement is needed. Nothing else is needed to make you one with him again. There is no more separation in the relationship. Let me read that for you one more time. If you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, there is no more atonement needed, which means there is no more separation in your relationship with the Lord. I don't care what you've done or thought about doing this week. There is no more separation between you and the Lord. No more atonement is needed. Which means priests, which means church. What Hebrews has told us, and I would really encourage you, if, if any of this sparks any interest, go read, go read the whole book of Hebrews, but go read Hebrews 7 through 10. It's all about Jesus, the high priest. It's all about what Jesus has done as your high priest. But what Hebrews has told us is actually true. This is reality. No more is needed. No more atonement is needed on your behalf. And that may not seem like it matters to you because you may, maybe aren't sacrificing animals in your backyard. I hope not. Like, I don't know if you're like, well, we won't, sorry. Keep this serious here because it's very holy. But the idea that no more atonement is needed may not register with you because you may not think you're offering blood sacrifices and you don't feel like you're atoning. But how often do you believe about your relationship with the Lord that you've got to do something to be one with him again? How often do you feel like you need to perform something, achieve something, or deeper than that, prove something about you to the Lord in order to have full access to him? How often do you think you need to offer something of your goodness in order to be restored to the kindness of his presence? But what Hebrews 9 just told us is that the sacrifice of Jesus frees us. Get this. Listen to what it says at the very end of Hebrews, of the section we read in Hebrews 9. It frees us from acts that lead to death. That term, acts that lead to death, is literally translated Worthless rituals or worthless sacrifices. The blood of Jesus frees us from worthless sacrifices. That anything you think you can bring him to restore your relationship, to make atonement for your relationship, is worthless to him. Not worthless because you're worthless. It's worthless because atonement's already been made. 
And nothing you could bring to him to begin with is more precious than the blood of Jesus anyway. And so it's worthless. And so the blood of Jesus frees us from having to bring anything to him or try to prove anything to him or try to offer anything to him that would make us one with him again. You are already one with him because of the blood of Jesus. So nothing else is required. And now you're free from ever having to offer anything or prove anything or be anything in order to be one with the Lord. You are not required to mediate yourself to the Lord because no more atonement is needed on your behalf. Do you know, okay, so th- that, that should floor you, but it also can change you. L- listen, listen to this. If that's true, or maybe since that's true, do you know that full atonement on your behalf can actually change how you interact with people in your world? It can actually, it's made you a priest. You're a priest. You have access to God's presence Now listen to how full atonement can actually change how you relate to people in your world. You now are free to not require people to pay atonement for the space that's in your relationship. You can pay it. You weren't required to pay for your own atonement, so what makes you think you're allowed to require other people to pay for their atonement? Now, atonement may be needed in a relationship But many times, when the offended party needs atonement, we require the other party to pay it. But here's what what you being free and you having your atonement paid for, you can actually, in in the breakdown, in a relational space, in something that there is alienation in a relationship, you are now free, as even the offended party, to pay the atonement. To say, I'll eat this cost. And I'll pay for the space, and I won't let this space, I won't hold that person's sins against them. I'll pay for it. I won't treat them like they owe me something because I'm going to pay for it myself. What would it look like to pay the atonement price for your relationship with your parents? What would it look like to pay the atonement price for your spouse? What would it look like to pay the atonement price for a relationship in your life and then not hold that over someone? Because guess what Jesus doesn't do when he pays our atonement? He doesn't come along and say, hey, hey, come on. I, I mean, I mean, I paid your atonement. You, you, need, to, you need to straighten up because I, I'm the one that paid this. Like when you pay an atonement, you actually treat the other person like there is no more space in the relationship anymore. And when you try to do this, when you try to do that with somebody that's in your world, a parent, a roommate, a spouse, a friend, when you try to do that, guess what you're going to find out? It's really hard. Because nothing in you wants to die and pay the atonement cost that is causing the relational space. And so when you fail at paying the atonement price for someone in your world, guess what you'll be more grateful for? The full atonement that Jesus paid for you. He doesn't even hold your inability to not pay the atonement price for your friends. He doesn't hold that against you either. You're at one with him. And even failing to pay the atonement price doesn't get held against you. You're a priest now, though, Royal priesthood of Midtown, you have full access to God's presence because of the blood of your great high priest, Jesus. And priests are marked. Priests priest in the system of Old Testament Israel always, always took on the practices of the high priest. They were kind of under the high priest. They studied under the high priest. They learned from the high priest. And so church, priest of Midtown, priest of God, do you know who your high priest is? Your high priest is Jesus. 
and his willingness to pay the atonement price for you should drive us in learning, in wanting to learn how to do that for people in our world too. If you don't know how to do that, or if that sounds foreign to you, if that sounds uh, miserable to you to pay the atonement price for other people, ask Jesus. He knows full well what it's like because he did it for you too. Let's pray. Jesus, um, it's, it's, uh, it feels like too much to even say out loud, and I wouldn't be able to stand here and say it if your word didn't declare it first, that you have really gone into the Holy of Holies, and you really have sprinkled your own blood, and you really have paid atonement once and for all. Permanent redemption is now ours. And the curtain's been torn, and we're here in your presence with unlimited access to your presence because of the work of the cross. Open our eyes to that reality. Bring us to our senses that we, we would be fully aware of just how much has been done for us and then we would be a priesthood. We would be a kingdom of priests who does that for the world around us. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.